no surprises that that is uh, Neil Young. On this day in 1975, Neil Young records Like a Hurricane in California. The song was released a couple of years later. It remains a fan favourite. Neil Young took the song to his crazy, his, his band Crazy Horse with just two lines written on an envelope. You are like a hurricane, there's calm in your eye. And Crazy Horse guitarist uh, Poncho San Pedro said, we kept playing it, two guitars, bass, drums, but it wasn't in the pocket. It took quite a while uh, to get there. Anyway, uh, who hasn't uh, played this song if you're in a covers band? Right, Chris? Um, It's a perennial. Yeah, it is. Yeah, probably a little bit slow for, you know, pub covers and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, no, uh, it's a great song, uh, Nikki. I came to Neil Young really late, like a year and a half ago. <laughs> Seriously? I, I yeah. still haven't yeah. come to Neil Young, You I'm haven't afraid. come to Neil Young? No, not, a fan. <laughs> not a fan. Congratulations, Wallace. Finally a decent power ballad with Like a Hurricane. Uh, are you surprised at that, Chris? Are you an old school Neil Young well, fan? Uh, um, yeah, I was. I, well, I was introduced to it when I was a t- teenager and first radio station I worked at out of school, King Country Good. Radio in Taumaranui. Oh, gosh. By wow. um, one of the, he was the breakfast announcer at the time, Glenn Oliver, who knew oh, yes. all of this music. And Glenn <laughs> opened my eyes to a whole bunch of stuff. This... Uh, um, Leonard Skinner um, oh. and who was it the British rock band power rock band that did Aqualung and the likes Jethro Tull Jethro Tull oh, no oh. great stuff Chris great stuff Nikki hashtag not a fan not a fan sounds like a great radio station Chris oh uh, well no that was not what we were allowed to play on air that was what we played in the studio afterwards when we came off <laughs> no very adult contemporary um, mum and dad music that was okay. that we were allowed to play on air um, the German U-boat um, feedback keeps sliding in. Uh, more from Alice, the short movie about the German U-boat visiting New Zealand featured two genuine German actors interacting with a woman as they came ashore to try to steal milk from her cow. It featured in an international short form fest. Hera says, I contribute about $500 a year to a political party out of altruism. I get the satisfaction of seeing my values shown in policies and nothing else. I would prefer parties were state-funded. Isn't that interesting, Nikki? Yeah, so that just, is interesting. Just a few hundred bucks every year. Yeah. Just um, pop, it, pop it on a horse that you like. Yeah, which is nice. I mean, I'm never going to probably give money to a political party. I can think of a lot of other things that I would do with my charitable Absolutely. Um, so but, but I respect that choice. Air fryers, yeah. for example. Uh, the panel, 438. Lovely to have your company. There are... Significant inequities in how New Zealanders experience the later years of life, according to a review of New Zealand's retirement policy. The Retirement Commission said fewer retirees were living in houses they owned and many struggled to afford food and rent. So uh, it's calling for the asset cap in the accommodation supplement to rise from $8,100 to 42700 bucks, unchanged for 30 years. And by the way, Nationals' Chris Luxon continues to propose lifting the superannuation age to 67, despite this report from the Retirement Condition recommending the age of eligibility remain the same. So to discuss, we have Natalie Vincent, Chief Executive of Natangata Microfinance. Kia ora, Natalie. Kia ora. Uh, you have quite a few clients that are retired, so 
you'd be well placed to um, speak about this issue. What are you seeing? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, in fact, we've actually had an increase of clients coming to us uh, who are seniors and retired. Uh, in fact, in the last uh, this year compared to last year, we had um, more, more than double the amount of people uh, over sixty-five applying for small loans from us to purchase um, household items or well-being types of things like dentures or medical care. Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of people arriving at retirement uh, with insufficient uh, funds to live um, a thriving life. More than double in the last year? That's, That's right. extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, it's an impact. It's the cost of living has clearly had an impact. And, you know, we work with low-income New Zealanders, so obviously people who are relying solely on a benefit for reasonably low income. And uh, 45% of those clients are in private rentals and another 25% in social housing. Now, if you're a private renter and relying just on the super and an accommodation supplement, you are really struggling to get by. Yeah, so and that was, I guess, um, what I really took from this. If there was a sort of general tenor, it was uh, that uh, the super or pension is really um, out of date, needs to be remodernised. Uh, mm. uh, the commissioner was saying super is predicated on you either having a mortgage-free house or a comfy little social housing flat, do you think super is still fit for purpose? Yeah, look, we really supported uh, all of the recommendations from the Commissioner, um, and the, the accommodation supplement, you know, that, that's wildly inadequate and, um, and has been an issue for some time. Um, as, as accommodation now um, for seniors, you know, there's not very much suitable, safe rental accommodation available to them that is fit for purpose. Um, and the accommodation supplement, you know, the recommendation to increase the cap, I mean, that's absolutely sensible. If you are arriving at retirement at the moment only with $8,100 in cash assets, you won't, you're not eligible for the accommodation supplement. I mean, that's oh. just way too, that's just way too low. You know, okay. If you're a private renter, you you know, and you've got eight thousand dollars in the bank, you you won't um, qualify for the accommodation supplement. Precarious, isn't it, Nikki? It really is. This worries me a lot, actually, because I'm going to be someone who gets to sixty-five and still has a mortgage, probably for quite a yeah. few years after that. Okay. Um, so, what's your thoughts? I think my thought. I'm still cranky about the gender pay gap. Okay, yep. and there is a yeah. gender <laughs> component here too, because we know don't we, Natalie, that women arrive at retirement with less money than men and in a worse situation. So I reckon there's a case to be made too for superannuation to be reworked with a gender component. Yeah, and, and that's, that's covered in the recommendations. You know, women arriving at retirement with less um, assets than, than males. And we know that 61% of our clients who are 65 plus are female. Yeah. They are disproportionately affected. Um, and, yeah, that, that goes way back, like you say, to the gender pay gap, the earning potential over the years um, for a woman, arriving, you know, then arriving at a retirement without the same savings. Mm, Chris? Yeah, I mean, one, I remember when a lot of people were cheering that interest rates were going down and, and, and advisors 
you know, to the elderly were saying, well, hey, hang on, um, in, interest rates are one of the areas where if they do have a little bit of money in the bank, that actually provides key income to survive during the year. So low interest rates have actually been really, really bad. Um, it, it's an area where you know, so many of our retirees have so little room to move. And when something changes around them, like the cost of living now, um, they're in dead trouble. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we're seeing. You know, we're seeing more and more people having to come to us to borrow small loans for essential living costs, you know, car repairs. You know, just for an example, we've recently had a a 68-year-old client come to us who's relying on only on super, an accommodation supplement, a small disability allowance. She pays half of that for private rent. She has a food budget of $60 a week. And she actually just cannot make ends meet. And she needed to repair her car. If she didn't repair her car, she would be completely isolated because she lives rurally. So not only are we impacting these people um, of actually being able to pay their bills, they're not having the opportunity to participate in society. And then all of us miss out, you know. That's so true. I think this is really sad. And it kind of reflects a bit of ageism, or a lot of ageism really, in our thinking and our society. It's all very well to say raise the age, raise the superannuation age, but that's from someone who is wealthy and privileged and it's easier You don't support that? We might come back to this tomorrow. You don't support raising the age? Well, I think it makes it very difficult for people who are not wealthy and privileged, honestly. Chris? Um, I think it should stay the same. I think it's 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 unrealistic and and not um, cognizant of too many people in our population to uh, to raise it. They just can't cope. Yeah. I will we'll yeah. come back to that particular issue tomorrow. Lifting the uh, separation It's kind of a, a related but yeah. a separate issue. But I mean, some of the misconceptions around retirement, Natalie, we touched on it. But you know, the retirement commissioner saying the 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 the, the, the myth, I guess, is a, a wealthiest person owning their own home with sufficient capital to live quite comfortable comfortably. And that may be for some, but it just takes one life shock, doesn't it? It could be a marriage breakup or actually serious illness. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is what we're starting to see too, is that it's, you know, people may own their own home and you've always thought that that's going to give you that security and surety when you are um, reaching retirement. And of course it does. It provides you the stable housing, which is great. But if you actually have no cash savings as well, um, you, you're finding it hard to make cover your costs every week. We're seeing older people who are taking reverse mortgages to have to um, do any house repairs or things like that, um, and they just don't have those small cash amounts available for life shocks or little financial hiccups right. that come along. Kia ora, Natalie. Good to have you on the programme. Kia thank That's, you. That's uh, Natalie Vincent there, Chief Executive of Natangata Microfinance. Um, so... Uh, can I ask you, Nikki, just touching, because it's a big issue for uh, people, this is something that's on your mind every now and then, um, it might play on your mind at the night, oh my goodness, yeah. I will have my mortgage past 65. I worry about it, yeah, I do, and in those quiet moments. I mean, I don't imagine stopping work at 65, to be honest, but why would I? I'd still have, yeah. I'd still have lots of energy and, and you know, hopefully yeah. be healthy. But still, the idea of having that burden, you know, probably another decade after that, it may be, unless I happen to win lotto or something, um, that's that's a pressure. And really, you know, 
the way that we are about older people, you know, the ageism that does apply, you do wonder how 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 will I work when I'm that when I'm that age, and how will I support myself? And I'd like to hear from my listeners on that. Yeah. Uh, email me the panel at rnz dot co dot nz. We'll come back to it. Well, New Zealand's video game industry is booming, with its revenue doubling to $407 million in the space of one year. But it's under threat from overseas competition. Australia's tax incentives are luring Kiwi talent across the ditch. They're rolling out the welcome mat. Back here, the government is offering grants to boost innovation is it enough? With us is NZ Game Developers Association Chairperson Chelsea Rapp. Welcome, Chelsea. Jordan, thank you for having me. Is it really our fastest growing export industry? It is. I didn't know that. Yes, it's actually. I had one no the, idea. Yeah, it's one of the fastest growing export sectors, and it accounts for a huge portion of uh, our software exports specifically. Good grief. And in New Zealand, the sector is alive and well. It is, actually. It's been growing pretty steadily uh, for the past several uh, years. It's been around for almost 30. Uh, but we're, our uh, annual growth rate is around 35%. So what's the problem? Um, the challenge, basically, is that Australia's uh, tax incentives, which are very similar to schemes that exist worldwide and have for several decades, um, this scheme is one of the most attractive ones that exists. Um, and the challenge is that, you know, these schemes often attract, you know, really big American subsidiaries that when they move to Australia, they need a lot of talent to support their operations. Um, and given the, the ease of transfer between Australia and New Zealand, New Zealand essentially becomes the ideal place for those studios to source and recruit that talent. Oh, okay. So the... Um, Nikki, they're putting on a show over in Australia uh, and they're taking away our talent in what is amazing, isn't it? The fastest growing export industry. Yeah, that is amazing. Extraordinary. I didn't know that either. But really, I mean, young, talented people are always going to move to Australia and, you know, work there for a little while. And, you know, I think that's a very common pattern for us as Kiwis to do. I don't know that anything can really stop that. More money. Yeah, but it's not more, that, money. All, more money's not the only reason that you go overseas to work, is it, and have an OE and Chelsea? Stuff. I mean it is it is significantly more money. They're offering on average um thirty to fifty percent higher salaries. Oh, that's but in this good. case <laughs> that's um, good. <laughs> maybe I need to go. Maybe I need to yeah. retrain. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and very significant relocation packages. I mean, they really are rolling out the red carpet. Um and the challenge for us is that they're primarily attracting senior level um, people, which are really critical for the New Zealand industry uh, in order to train a lot of these graduates that are coming out of, you know, new game and interactive media programs at, you know, pretty much every university in New Zealand. Wouldn't you think, Chris, uh, we'd be pulling up the stops to retain these people? Well, I would have thought so. You know, we've, we've done it for movies and things. It's, uh, I knew it was an unsung hero, but I didn't realise it was growing. The sector was growing as fast as it, as it is. I mean, do we just let that money walk offshore and walk out the door? And uh, now Chris has been comparing it to movies, and that's a bit of a sore point uh, with uh, your sector, isn't it, Chelsea? Because you see the um, big, um, uh, what, do you, what do you call it? The subsidies that goes to films such as Lord of the Rings 
and yet you folk. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's always been a sore point for us, especially because so often now, you know, movies are very frequently made into games. And so, oh. you know, people can come here and make them, you know, make a movie. But if they stay here and make the game, they get no subsidy. Um, and the the thing about the film subsidies to begin with is they were created so that New Zealand could be on the same playing field as film industries worldwide. Um, and that's really essentially what we're asking for here. You know, a lot of people love to bring up the race to the bottom argument, but we're not asking to be the biggest or the best or the most attractive incentive scheme out there. We want just enough to be able to retain our talent. Uh, we're not looking to attract big American subsidiaries. We want to grow what we've already built here. I'm sure you'll hear more about this. Uh, Chelsea, kia ora, thanks for your time. And I think that on that kia point, ora. there's a fundamental thing there, um, and, and, and that is the whole industry uh, is based here. It, it's not like you're having a Warner Brothers or a, a New Line Cinemas or whoever coming Great over point. and Great doing point. something and then going away again. This gaming sector is, you know, it's it's native, if you like. It's it's growing here. It is here. Mm. All the people are employed here. All the money stays here. Seeded from here. Now, I will say, though, that the government is investing two and a half million a year uh, until 2027. But they say, look, not enough compared to what you're getting in Australia, 30 to 50 cent higher wages. Oh, my goodness gracious. Uh, now, uh, I'm 74, says a listener. I do not have a mortgage, but cannot afford to live in my own home. Mm. The cost of living is sliding me steadily backwards. I had savings until they were lost in the financial crisis, and health issues left me only with super. So... I am still having to work to stay above water. My next step is going to be a reverse mortgage at 74. Mm. I I dare say that that person is not alone in that situation. Email me, the panel at rnz.co.nz. And here's a story that caught my eye. RNZ sports journalist Bridget Tunnicliffe has written an interesting piece that lays out what female professional sports players earn. For some time, it was only netball that would pay its elite players. It's changed. Quite a variation. For example, netball, they get a retainer of between $30,000 going up to fifty-six dollars and then $1,500 per test. Contracted white ferns, cricket, can now earn between 142000 and 163000 which includes both the retainer and match fees should they play every game. To discuss, we have Professor of Sport and Gender at the University of Waikato, Holly Thorpe. Kia ora, Holly. Kia ora. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. Really interesting um, discussion and actually article this one, and I guess all really highlighted to a great degree, by the most extraordinary Rugby World Cup, Holly. It was extraordinary, wasn't it? And I think it really proved that New Zealanders and the world wants to watch women's sport, that it brings audiences and it's captivating and it's powerful and we love the characters of the athletes. And so... You know, finally, we're waking up to the to the potential of women's sport. Can I relate? Can I raise that because this directly relates to salaries? When two years ago, when I bring this issue up, we'd get quite a few texts saying that's all very well, us lovely, lovely, lovely story, but people do not watch women's sport. 
Yes, it's a very old argument. A very old argument, isn't it? But, you know, if we look at the history of Mm. women's sport, those arguments have been used again and again um, to justify the underfunding of women's sport. And so the whole kind of sport media industry complex of sport has been always very uneven. Um, And so we've got a long way to kind of catch up in terms of investing in women's sport um, to even get near to where the you know, men's sport is at today in terms of levels of investment. And so while it's great to see these numbers across women's sports mm. or team sports, if we compared those alongside men in those same sports, I think we'd see a very uneven landscape. And that, you know, if that was business or a workplace, we'd be throwing our arms up and going, look at the, look at the gender inequity going on in here. They're training the same amount, you know, competitions around the world, our big public personas. And yet they're really still getting paid peanuts in comparison. Yeah, we've been talking about the gender pay gap today and here it is again. I think this is great to see that women are being paid to work, which is what they're doing. But it wasn't compared to the men, which is interesting. I'd like to hear, see those yeah, do we know comparisons. What, do we know what the gender pay gap in sport is overall? Holly, you would know, I guess. No, it's very sport specific. Right. Um, you know, if we look at if we look at rugby, um, the All Blacks are play, you know, paid much, much more than our black ferns. Mm. Um, and basically every sport is like that, except there are a few. If we look at tennis, um, the global stage, uh, women are paid the same per competition. And that's because women fought really hard in the 60s and 70s uh, for equal pay. And now audiences turn up and they value women's tennis. They pay, play three sets, not five, but they fill stadiums. Right. If we look at the WSL, the uh, World Surf League, men and women are paid the same. So it really shows these sports organisations, some of them, not many of them, truly valuing women as athletes. And I think there's a lot of rhetoric out there, but sports organisations in New Zealand have still got a long way to really truly value our sportswomen. Chris? I agree completely. Um, Holly, one question I had was, are we big enough? Do we have the um, the pot of gold big enough to be able to do that? Yes, it's just about our priorities. Right? Yeah, why um, shouldn't we? Well, I just think we you know we're we're a very small nation. I because I've looked at you know, NBA and some of those big sports in the states and European football, where the crowds are just massive and the the revenue generation from tickets and sponsorships is so much bigger than we can we can generate here. Um, do, does that mean do we have to rebalance the men down a little bit to have enough money in the kitty to get the the way any up a bit? Oh, I think that'll depend on different sports organisations um, and their sort of priorities and how they want to to roll that out. But what we have seen women athletes doing after you know decades of being underfunded and not visible in the sports media, etc., we've seen them kind of taking it in their own hands. So they've built their own audiences using right. social media, for example, yeah. to really you know build a community around them, to build international audiences. And part of that is you know building the momentum for women's sport and for women's sports teams. And so we've actually seen very proactive approaches among sportswomen themselves. Yeah, such an interesting issue. Um, Professor Thorpe, kia ora. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for, ha- thanks for having me. Yeah, could have uh, talked uh, a lot longer on that, but anyway, that's a professor of sport 
and gender at the University of Waikato. So ending there, um, and uh, the th- th- thread running through the show is uh, uh, that pay gap there, Nikki. Being huh? paid fairly yeah, for right. the work that you do. It shouldn't Good be too you. much to ask. Hey, great uh, show, folks. I really appreciate your time. That's Chris Wickaida and Nikki Bazant. I'm Wallace Chapman. I'm back tomorrow at 3.45. Uh, Checkpoint is next. Stay with us. <laughs>